Hey, welcome to the Rusty George Podcast. Uh, today we get a chance to have a conversation with a former professor of mine from my days at Ozark Christian College. He is now a pastor uh, on a very large staff at a church of over 20,000 people in Phoenix, Arizona. And he's just a great mind and uh, he's a lot of fun. Um, but he's written a lot of great books, and he has done extensive work over in Israel and the Holy Land and on the life of Jesus. He's written a couple of, co- of commentaries on the life of Christ, um, which I highly recommend. His name is Mark Moore, and he's going to have some great stuff for us today. Today we get into things like predestination, the book of Revelation, um, the end times, Jesus walking in Israel and how to use the Yelp app, all kinds of great stuff. So hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. And as always, feel free to share this with other people. Okay, so my guest today is Mark Moore. And Mark and I go way back to the Ozark Christian College days. And for our listeners, Mark, give them a brief sketch of your life. You grew up um, in Texas, right? San Antonio? Actually, I grew up uh, over in California, a little north of you, Sacramento, the old cow town. Oh, that's right. And then you ended up serving in in San Antonio for a while. Is that right? That's exactly right. So after after you and I had our glorious days in Ozark Christian College, uh, I went down to a little bilingual church in the south side of San Antonio. It was a rough neighborhood. I loved every minute. It scared my wife to death. But it was it was a is a really small church. Well, we did, we did double in size, which means we went from 65 to 130. So I'm proud of that. Wow. Uh, and, then, and then went back to Ozark to teach for 22 years. My goodness. You were there that long, huh? Yeah, I was. It's, it's kind of a little bit of exile in the Midwest, let's be honest. <laughs> well, let me ask you about that, because you, you grew up in California, and then you lived in Texas, and then you moved to Joplin, Missouri. What was the uh, culture shock like? Well, uh, imagine taking someone who grew up in Fiji and throwing him into a polar bear plunge in, you know, the Arctic or something. It it, it wasn't just the the weather. It was really um, the culture for me. And I, I guess Rusty, you get this completely being in California. Christianity in California, like you have to make a decision. You're you're kind of outing yourself, if you will. Right. In the Midwest, it was much more culturally uh, acceptable. So it was, I, I think the biggest shock for me was I didn't know who is really a Christian and who is playing the part. Let's talk about that. Uh, how would you define that, Mark? Because I think, and, and I, I credit John Ortberg with a lot of new writings in this about beyond just the minimal entrance exam, beyond just the magic word prayer how would you define a follower of Jesus versus a cultural Christian? Well, there's so many layers to that, of course. And, and, and there's one of the things I love about God and Jesus in particular is he comes to you where you are. And so to say, what is a disciple? It will disciple is a relationship between you and Jesus. And that's going to look uh, is sometimes very different between two individuals that maybe even live in the same household. But what is always the same is that it's a relationship of learning and fidelity between you and Jesus. I know that's a simplistic answer, but compare that to someone who goes to church. Their relationship is with the church. Their relationship is with their family. Their relationship is to a measure of morality of some cultural defined righteousness. And that's very different than a relationship with Jesus, as you know. So sometimes they can look a lot the same, but here's the Here's the danger, I think, for me, if I could go into a little bit of sociological science, 
we all value ourselves or get our self-esteem by some set of values. If you're an athlete, it's by how many points you score or you know how many championships you win. And that's what validates you as a good person. In cultural Christianity, people are they're validated by the rules that they keep, the number of times they go to church or how much of the Bible they have memorized. And what happens then is the relationship with Jesus is put to the side because I already know I'm a righteous person because of my relationship with the rules. The result is always one of two things. Always, always, always. Either that will make you judgmental of outsiders or insecure as an insider wearing a mask where you're not living up to someone else's expectations. And both of those have devastating consequences for the individual and for the the communities that you're involved in. Knowing what you, I mean, I'm just thinking about what you just said, because that's, there's a lot there. That's so good. I love the way you define that. How would you define where we are? I mean, especially West Coast. You're in Phoenix, Arizona now, and I'm talking to people in California predominantly. Yeah, and in Southern California specifically. Exactly. So don't you think, in, in where we're living now, West Coast, that we're, we're typically more on the insecure side of things than the judgmental side? Well, I, yeah, I absolutely do. And what's interesting is this is true uh, in terms of ethnic groups. You, you think that America is like a stew. It's really much more like a salad where there's a ton of different elements thrown together, but those elements tend to stick together especially where there is a a cultural threat. So like Dearborn, Michigan has the highest concentration, I believe, of uh, Muslims in America. They are actually more inclined to follow Sharia law than even in the Middle East in some places. Wow. Because where your identity is threatened by the broader culture around you, you actually move further to the inside of your culture rather than capitulating uh, or compromising with the culture outside. So I find it's, it's an interesting mix where, where you live in Southern California. You have some of the, mo- the, the most conservative pockets of religion. I mean, John MacArthur's in your backyard as an example of a very conservative group of people. And so I don't don't want to be critical of other groups. A lot of that judgmentalism is defensiveness. Mm -hmm. So if you took it over to the Appalachians, a whole different kind of culture, the snake handlers of Appalachia are actually very proud of their religious heritage and very judgmental of others who don't have the faith to handle snakes. That, I mean, you could... We always blame it on the Bible. Well, the Bible teaches us to do that, this or that. But the reality is there's the social pressure of survival of your cultural idiosyncrasies in a culture that is violently opposed to you. Mm. Let me ask you this. You've, you've been in ministry for, for many years and yet still a young man. Absolutely. <laughs> you, you served in, in ministry in San Antonio. You served in ministry as a professor at Ozark for 22 years. You've been in Arizona now at Christ Church of the Valley uh, for how many years now? Uh, going on seven. Seven years. Okay. You, uh, uh, and I, I tell you this all the time, you wrote the greatest commentary set I've ever had the experience of reading about the life of Jesus. Your classes about the life of Christ were always packed. Everybody wanted to hear your take on Jesus. After X number of years of living, X number of years of following Jesus, X number of years of being in ministry, 
What do you know about Jesus now you didn't know 10 years ago, 20 years ago? What are you drawn to more now today than you, maybe you even thought about a decade ago? I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a never-ending journey in this amazing relationship with Jesus. But what are you discovering now that's just so, uh, uh, I don't know, overwhelming to you? Yeah, well, actually, thank you, Rusty. And, and actually, some of your preaching has helped me along the way in this, thinking about Jesus and the way he treats people. One of the, and I'm not good at this, uh, and God help me. I want to be good at this. He had a way of meeting somebody in their lowest point and without, without a condemning judgmentalism, make them a good person. So like all the rules that they tried to follow and failed just ground them into the dirt. The woman caught in adultery, as an example. He lifts her up in this, it's like a millisecond of genius. There's something about how he received the beauty of people, made them, not just made them want to be better, but empowered them through grace to actually achieve the level of righteousness that that the law could never take them to. Mm. That has never ceased to amaze me about Jesus. How can, like, I, I don't go to a lot of keggers, as you might imagine. <laughs> Not <And> since yet, <laughs> Ozark. <laughs> well, I've been to a couple, and I'm like a wolf. Like, in a church world, I'm, a, you know, a gad about and, like, super social and, you know, happy to be there. I go to, I, I go to some of these events uh, that was, I was at one the other night. It was called uh, Whiskey and War Stories. Mm. So literally, guys sat around. It was to raise money for uh, to, for uh, disabled veterans and their families. But to, to go to a place called Whiskey and War Stories, it's like, I, it's weird for me. Had Jesus been there, he would have been the center of attention without being weird about it. How do you How do you do that? And that's kind of what I'm, that's what I want to learn as I get a little older and I care about fewer and fewer people's opinions. I want to be able to live a life that so envelops a person Mm. that I see in them their potential and not their past. Mm. You have taught me a lot uh, through your writings and just in our conversations about the value of understanding Jesus' Jewish heritage. Yeah, in understanding the things that he said, the things that he did. And I don't think I ever fully got that until I went to Israel and kind of saw a lot of this and, and, and listened to what he was thinking and talking about at the time. Give, give our listeners two or three things that we probably don't understand when we read the scriptures unless we understand a little bit of Jesus' Jewish heritage. Well, yeah, and there's a couple of authors that have really helped me along the way. Jerome Nere has been one. Anything Jerome Nere writes, Bruce Molina has been another. And all the think of it, think of it like this: anytime you go to a foreign country, you usually hire a guide hmm. because they can help you with transportation. They translate some of the language. They say, "Hey, don't shake hands with this person. Don't go in this neighborhood at this time of night." Some, and it's not a lot of information you need, but a, a little bit of information goes a long way in appreciating cultural differences. So, the, the sidebar story, uh, my mother was a trainer in diversity and worked with an Asian uh, business owner in an African-American neighborhood. And their business started 
like going belly up. Nobody would buy from them anymore. And they ask the neighbors, why are you blackballing this family? They go, well, because they hate us. No, what, what are they doing that makes you think they hate us? Well, they won't touch us. Well, what do you mean they won't touch you? Well, when they give us our change at the store, they lay it on the table and slide it over. They won't touch us. Well, for an African-American and the history of America, that's a really sensitive topic. So they talk to the owners. Why won't you put change in their hands? And they say, well, in Asia, money is dirty. We would never insult someone by putting change in their hands. And so you just see two cultures at play. And it, Americans make some assumptions. And so you, here's the answer to your question. We make some assumptions that are simply not good assumptions. Hmm. Here's one, the primacy of individuals. Whereas in the Middle East for Jesus culture, it's the primacy of the group that matters the most. So for example, uh, in baptism, we, we ask people, do you accept Jesus as your own personal Lord and Savior? Actually, no, I don't. He is not my, I accept him personally, but he's not my personal Savior. He is the Messiah, who is the King of Israel. And to be saved, this is New Testament, you have to be a child of Abraham, granted by adoption. But if you're not, you're not in. The kingdom of God is through the kingdom of spiritual Israel. And I know that opens up a whole can of worms I'm not even going to get into. Drop the mic, walk away. Here's another <laughs> one. Communion. In in every church I've been in, communion is the most individualistic time of the service. And yet, the very name betrays the paradox. It is communal. So that's one area, Rusty, that I would love for everyone to kind of dig in a little bit is the power of community over the power of individualism. Another, another topic is shame honor, that we just, we, we don't broker in honor, we broker in money. And Americans will give up their honor to make money, and the Middle Easterns would give up their money to gain honor. And every single public interaction of Jesus was a contest for honor, and he always won. Until the death knell of honor is the shameful, the shameful execution of crucifixion. There is no, there is no other single way of robbing someone of more honor in, a, in, a, in an event than that. And yet the resurrection not only did it recover all of Jesus' honor, it actually exploded, it just turned it on its head. The cross became a boasting point. And, and that's why you hear Paul talking about, I will boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. It is extraordinary what Jesus did in transforming his culture in a shame-honor environment. So there's two examples. Wow, that's, that's fascinating. Okay, so while, while we're on the subject of, of Israel, you lead a tour of guys over there to do a walking tour. Is that right? Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, it is, it is probably the most fun thing I've ever done in my life. It's, uh, it's a 110-mile hike in 10 days. It is called the Jesus Trail. And it's actually pretty well marked. And the cool thing is there's a hiking app called Trek, T-R-E-K-K. You can put in the Jesus Trail on that Trek, on the Trek app while you're there. 
you can rent a Wi-Fi device that goes in your pocket and literally anybody could walk that trail with confidence because if you get 30 feet off the trail, you look on their, your Wi-Fi and you know the GPS on the Trek app will tell you exactly where you are. Uh, there, there is a book called The Jesus Trail that gives uh, places to stay. So you don't stay at your normal tourist places because some of the places you go, like the top of Mount Arbel, overlooking the uh, Lake of Galilee. It's, a, it's, it's an incredible experience. And then we hike, and part of the way down the cliff face, we are actually holding on to cables. And dropping would be a very bad thing. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great adventure for a group of guys. Walking those steps of Jesus is absolutely powerful. And you've been Israel, so everybody who goes has a wonderful spiritual experience in the sacred sites of Nazareth, and uh, you stand in the synagogue of Capernaum, right? It's, the synagogue is built on, on, right on top of the one that Jesus was at, so you know you were standing like five feet above where Jesus preached, or walking the Via Dolorosa. All of those are extraordinary experiences. The power of this, Rusty, which surprised me, I knew that the adventure side of it for guys would light their fire. Mm-hmm. What I didn't expect is you have a spiritual conversation at a sacred site, and guys are like bought into it. And then you have a three-hour hike. And it's kind of like at a campfire. You don't stay put. You don't stay in the same group the whole time. So you'll have a, an hour-long conversation with three guys. One guy drops out. Two more guys come in. And watching the Holy Spirit work with men as they have these dynamic conversations is uh, is an overpowering experience. And then, and then, I don't know if you know this, uh, two years ago, one of the guys on a hike found a tattoo shop in the old city of Jerusalem that opened in the year 1300. And one <laughs> of the stamps they have is a, is a Jerusalem cross, a cross in the middle with four crosses on the side. Uh-huh. The stamp is 500 years old. <laughs> <laughs> so my my two best friends were on the hike with me and they go hey we're ready to get like i'd never ha- i did i only have one tattoo but when your two best friends in israel after a 110 mile hike say would you like to have a stamp that was 500 years old to mark this occasion the answer has to be yes well of course is the needle 500 years old uh no they do use modern equipment and even <laughs> like yeah so uh, we, we, we were good on that uh just out of curiosity best place to eat in old jerusalem best place to eat in old jerusalem <clears throat> boy i you know what i don't i don't know that there's that much of a difference in the shawarma shops it seems to me like all the recipes are the same. <laughs> but if you want American food, there is in the Jewish sector a uh, a little hamburger uh, hamburger shop over by the the main synagogue in Jerusalem. That that's all I got. Sorry. Um, okay, I'm just going to throw out random questions to you, and knowing your personality, you're going to love this. I would hate it, but here we go. <laughs> Shoot, buddy. Uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre versus Garden Tomb, which one's right? Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Why do you think so? Well, some people are going to hate me for this. 
The reason that Protestants like the garden tomb is because Protestants will always gravitate to outdoor experiences and Catholics and Orthodox gravitate to indoor experiences. And the idea is the more ornate it is, the more authentic it must be. Mm-hmm. For Protestants, they're going, we don't recognize the bells, we don't recognize the incense, and so it feels more foreign to us. It's just a different of the the corporate personality. To answer your question, the tomb in the church in the garden tomb is a hundred years off architecturally. It it is the form of a hundred BC, not thirty AD. Gotcha. And the most convincing uh, feature of the garden tomb, of course, is the is the skull, right? Mm-hmm. The, the skull face. Well, here's the problem: it is already eroded. So that it's difficult to recognize the skull that was discovered in, what, 1880 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, if it's eroded that much in 150 years, how much different did it look when G- 2,000 years ago? So limestone erodes, that's hardly an authentic identifying marker. Mm. Okay. But what I, tell, what I tell people when they go to the Garden Tomb today, this is the place. Yeah. Just let just let it be. Right, and I think it, it, it allows you to visualize it so much clearer, and, and it's always a, a holy moment for everybody who's there. Absolutely. Well, and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is so is so busy and packed that you you can't enjoy it. So th- th- I know you have another question, but one year when I was on this hike, we got to Jerusalem thirty minutes before President Trump did. Oh wow! So everything shut down. Of course, we're we're thirteen guys with backpacks looking rugged. We looked like CIA, trying not to look like CIA. So we literally walked past a barricade going towards the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and we were met by two Israeli soldiers with automatic weapons, and we simply asked, are you ready for us? They assumed (laughs) that we were who we were not. They let us in. We were the only ones in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre for about 10 minutes. It was stupid. What a cool moment. No one's had that experience. It was ridiculous. Yeah, last time I was there, which was back in early January, late December, I think I was in Church of the Holy Sepulchre with about 5,000 people. I mean, it was unbelievable how many people were crammed in there. It was not a holy moment. <laughs> no, that's right. And, and it's, it's not fun because other cultures don't have the spatial oh, no. or bathing needs that we do. No, not at all. Okay, let's, let's, uh, let me give you one a little tougher. Explain the book of Revelation to us in a couple minutes. Uh, actually, I don't even need a couple minutes. 30 seconds. You ready? Gotcha. The book of Revelation is not a calendar, so stop predicting dates. Thank you. It is a template that if you lay it over any period of suffering, the principles will allow you to live faithfully to Jesus. Mm. Was it written as a metaphor for John's churches in reference to Babylon? Well, I, I think that's one way to put it. I, I would go even farther to say there is nothing new in Revelation. There is no new image. All of them are recycled from previous political events like ancient Babylon in 586. 
So mm. if you were borrowing metaphors from previous political tense moments, you are recycling them during a political season where you you can't come out and just preach your doctrine. This is a way of speaking to believers in well, think about it. It's like cartoons on drugs, you know? It's like John, he may have found a mushroom. I don't know. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> but it's, it, it's, it, the apocalyptic language is designed to be political cartoons that are safe because outsiders don't get them. Right. But the, but the fact of the matter is, you know, people ask about, well, what about the tribulation? I don't, there may be a seven-year tribulation in our future. But what I know is... It will not be worse than the tribulations that other people have gone through throughout history mm-hmm. and remain faithful to Jesus because of the book of Revelation. So it feels a little arrogant to me to say, oh, what got them through, it's like it wasn't, that wasn't the real deal. Mm. So Battle of Armageddon, what would you say about that? Well, the Battle of Armageddon is an oxymoron. It is a slaughter of Armageddon. <clears throat> Read Revelation 19. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't even actually lift a finger. He just shows up and his enemies die. So, the, so let's, let's call it what it is. The question is whether it's literal or figurative. And I will let you know in a hundred years. <laughs> I, I do know this, that the, the batting average so far for prognostication of the Battle of Armageddon has been zero. Mm-hmm. And I'm not that smart or not that dumb to throw my hat in the ring in a losing game. Why do people continue to predict then if everybody's always wrong? Well, it goes back to what we discussed a little bit earlier about where you get your uh, religious value. And uh, if you'd let me just unpack this for about 45 seconds. Please. There are four ways that every religious group of all human history has evaluated themselves. There, there are four ways that you know if you're a good whatever, Muslim, Christian, Jew. Number one, your doctrinal purity. Do you believe the right stuff? Number two, your personal morality. Do you not smoke, not drink, not sleep around? Number three, your personal experiences, like do I speak in tongues or did, did, I, did my skin crawl? Did I have a euphoric experience? Number four, social justice. Here's the problem, Rusty. No organized religious group can focus on more than two of those. Hmm. So you have, your church will always choose two to focus on. And so what happens is if you're a church that is doctrinally oriented, then the more doctrine you know, the more you're validating your level of righteousness. Now, you might be sleeping around, or you might be ignoring the poor. You might be, uh, uh, you might be a racist or bashing immigrants. I mean, there's a whole lot of things that you could be doing. But as long as your doctrine is right, you justify your righteousness. So what I, what I find is that churches that focus on doctrine tend to praise uh, teachers of doctrine. And especially in the apocalyptic, man, if I can convince you to listen to me go on for a two or four hour lecture on apocalyptic prophecy, you are dependent on me for your spiritual growth. Hmm. And the ego involved in that is so intoxicating 
that it is difficult to even realize why it's so motivating to people. Wow. Well, we could drop the mic there. I think that, let me say it this way. Do you sense there's a shift right now in the Christian world that you and I both know from the ego-driven, almost Pope-like um, pastor, leader of a church, to more of a shepherding, relational, one-of-the-people kind of a feel that, that should have happened a long time ago, but now, since this era of reckoning we've gone through over the last few years, we're closer to that now than we were before? Well, I, I hope so. I'm not confident of that because ego is as old as Eden. Mm. And if we're having a reprieve, it is merely a reprieve. I don't see that in athletes. I don't see it in politicians. I don't see it in actors or CEOs whose salaries are continuing to rise in proportion to their workers. So I don't, I don't see how the church will sustain a more pastoral shepherding figure unless we vigilantly hang on to Jesus. Or if we're persecuted, that will be another major game changer. And I think we're, we could be on the cusp of some of that as well, Rusty. But I, I know the churches that are, are kind of in my tribe, and, and I know we, we share some of those overlapping circles. I think, I, I think it's, not a, it's not due to the broader culture. It's actually due to the age demographic of some of our younger pastors are less prone because of their communal nature mm. to a dictatorial side of leadership. That's good. But uh, you, I, I mean, I'm just guessing. You've thought about way more than I have, man. Well, I, I just I think you're onto something there with the age. I, I think that we have a generation of pastors coming up that are relying more on each other than just building their own kingdoms. And I, I sense more church planting going on, less, um, you know, large buildings, those kind of things. And it's, it's pretty fascinating. Okay, let me throw this one out. Um, predestination, sovereignty of God. Does God know the future? Does he predestine everyone? Is he watching this unfold like a movie? Um, where do you, where do you uh, stand with all of that? Yeah, so let me be cheeky, and then I will give you some research. I was predestined to believe in free will. <laughs> That's what I always say too. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of a, 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 an end of the argument kind of statement, but <clears throat> I was very curious about that statement, Rusty. So I spent an entire year reading through the Bible, looking for every single statement and every single person that's predestined. And I came up with a list of 14 individuals or groups that were predestined by God. Hmm. And I noticed with one potential exception, every single group or individual predestined was predestined to a task, not a destiny. So Paul was predestined to preach. Pharaoh was predestined to let God's people go. They were going to do that. They were, if God predestined you, you will do what he has predestined you to do. How you do it will determine whether it's an easy process or an excruciating process. Take Pharaoh as an example. I don't see individuals being predestined to salvation or damnation. From the biblical text, I don't see that. 
and again, that's probably a, a bit of my background. I have difficulty reconciling two passages with absolute predestination of destiny. One is, of course, Second Peter uh, three nine. God does not want any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Well, if that's what He wants, why didn't He get that? Hmm. The second one is Jesus' own parable, where He used the word election. Matthew twenty two begins and ends with this phrase, for many are called, but few are chosen. And the story itself answers how they were chosen. An invitation went out. The first group rejected it. They were not chosen. They got the invitation, but they weren't chosen. Those who responded to the invitation were chosen. Hmm. And I suppose theologically you could say, well, they were chosen because God chose that they would be chosen. That God chose that they would respond. Okay, but now you're just playing with semantics. And the reason I dislike this entire discussion, not that I dislike you, my friend, is that we are always talking about somebody else's salvation and not our own. Yes. That seems like a dangerous territory for me. Mm Mm-hmm. So again, why is that discussion even of interest to us? Because we're doctrinally oriented. And if I'm righter than you, then I'm more righteous than you. You know what? I would rather my righteousness be in social justice Mm -hmm. than doctrinal purity. Mm -hmm. I I will say one other thing about that. Because I'm I'm now 56 years old, and I still uh, act like I'm 11. I get it. Uh, but I have I have less windshield and more rearview mirror. As a general rule, your windshield looks like free will, and your rearview mirror looks more like sovereignty of God. So by the time I die, I may I may be totally a predestinationist. I don't know, but I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm moving more and more in that direction. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think I heard our friend Jim Johnson once say, "In the end, we all give John Calvin a hug." <clears throat> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not oh, sure. I'm but... sorry. We, we. That was French. I see. Okay. I don't know if I'll ever do that, but I, <laughs> but I do see what you're saying. Uh, God bless the broken road that led me here to you. Right. That's the way the country music would say would say it. Um, okay. Last last thing, because I know we've we've taken up a lot of your time, but I I do want people to know about your book that you've put out called Core Fifty Two, and I just think this is such a great value for everybody in the church, because I know there are listeners right now that are thinking, none of these issues help me on Monday. I'm not sure what this means. <laughs> I'm, a, <laughs> I'm just trying to teach, you know, uh, a group of junior high boys and keep them from doing something destructive this next week. Uh, but this book is so helpful for anybody who wants to just understand what the Bible is. And I've heard you often say you're on a quest to stamp out biblical illiteracy. That's right. Um, talk about what this book does and just kind of your thought process behind creating it. Yeah, so you know, I work in a, in a church like yours. Got, they got thousands of people that want to know the Bible better because they know the Bible will make them better. And yet few accomplish that bucket list item. Why? Well, we actually know the answer. The Bible's a big book, so where do I start? That's the first hurdle. The Bible's an old book, so I get lost along the way. That's the second hurdle. I think I have a realistic possibility of overcoming both those hurdles. And I've done it through the old Pareto principle, you know, the 80-20, uh, the, the, the value of the few. 80% of the benefit you get in any endeavor is from 20% of the effort. So I thought, well, why don't we just apply that to the Bible? 
I mean, who would be audacious enough to say, these are the passages with the highest ROI. If you dig into these, each of these passages will act like a window or a, a template for dozens of other passages. So that's what I did, Rusty. I just went through the Bible. And I'm not saying that, ever, that I'm right on every one, but I'm probably 90% there. And since no one else is doing it, I guess I'll be the first one to make the big mistake. But I've taken 52 passages and said, if you know these 52 passages, you will understand 90% of what every preacher preaches. And you can do that in 15 minutes a day, five days a week for one year. So the core 52 is 52 verses that you read the essay on Monday Tuesday, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put out a, a website. It's almost it's like we're a month away from it right now uh, of core52.org that will give video introduction for small groups for each of the chapters. It's going to be a video coaching on how to memorize each verse. So Monday you read a six-page chapter, like as a bathroom reader. Tuesday you memorize the verse, another, like five minutes. Wednesday... I'm going to give you in the book three verses just to meditate on so that you see where that core verse takes you on a trajectory through the rest of Scripture. Thursday is a story you read out of the Bible. So at the end of the year, you've read all the major stories of the Bible. Friday is one practical step of application that you can do in about 30 minutes. So I've tried to, from a pedagogical standpoint, give a balanced exercise plan for biblical literacy in one year. A church in Mason, Ohio is doing it, and the pastor told me in 20 years of ministry, he's never had anything engage more people more strongly than Core 52. So I'm I'm just really psyched. It's coming out uh, July 2019, and I think it has the potential uh, particularly if groups in churches giving you a plug-and-play resource that really will help people develop a biblical worldview and then put it into practice. Mm, that's great. Well, it's a great resource, and you were kind enough to give me a pre-release, and I, I love it. I think it'll be a Good. very valuable tool for, for all of our people. So, Mark, just a few uh, questions I usually ask guests at the end of our time together, and I didn't let you know about these ahead of time because I know you're really good on the spot. Uh, <laughs> the first one is just something you're reading right now that you really like and you would recommend. The second one is an app that you're using that you've had great benefit from, and it could be something highly spiritual or it could be you know, just a game. Uh, and then finally, a mistake you made on stage that you wouldn't mind sharing with all of us. <laughs> oh, so. those are, those are re- re- really good. Um, you know, I've, I've recently read uh, 12 Rules of Life by Jordan Peterson, and it kind of got me into his podcast. And he is, uh, I know that he is a divisive figure for a lot of people. What I love about him is that he's engaging particularly young men who have been purposeless because they haven't taken responsibility for their own lives. Right. So that's that's one book that has been really helpful. I'm embarrassed to tell you about another book. This is one of the secrets of ministry. I'm reading about a guy who does um, evaluation for governments and legal entities of how to tell if people are lying. It is called Wise or uh, Wise as Serpents, Innocent as Doves, and the subtitle is something about determining deception. But he's actually really helped me in having conversations with people because 
a lot of people aren't comfortable telling a pastor what's really going on. Hmm. And I'm not doing it to try to catch people who are lying. I really want to help people find where they're uncomfortable telling the truth because that might help me bridge a gap for them in an area of sensitivity. Hmm. So that's a, that's a, a couple of them. An app that I'm using, uh, gosh, I don't know that I'm very clever with apps. To be honest with you, probably one that I get the most help from is Yelp hmm. because I am a foodie. Hmm. I do care about what restaurant I eat in. An interesting fun fact about me, I seldom order in restaurants. I find a good restaurant, I find a good server, and I order by saying, surprise me. And I eat so well because I believe that a server who works at a restaurant is in a better position to make an informed decision about my diet. (laughs) I love that. All right, stage faux pas. Stage faux pas. Oh my gosh, uh, how how culturally sensitive are your listeners, Rusty? Can they, can they handle the truth? Uh, sure, we can always delete it. <laughs> <laughs> so it, this goes back to my Ozark days, where I was teaching a class, um, and you might have actually been in the class. It was a teaching ministry of the church, and so I'm going through, uh, you know teaching strategies, and we were shifting, this will date it, going from uh, five and a quarter inch floppy disks to three and a half inch hard disks. And I was very excited about this particular new technology. And I was just talking about what that will do in terms of being able to capture information and record information. And I kept saying five and a quarter inch floppy disks, but I didn't enunciate one of the S's (laughs) <laughs> on one of the go-rounds, and it was quite noticeable, and class was over. <laughs> There's nothing else you can do after that. Nope, you walk away. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Live to fight another day. That's right. And the story lives on in infamy with so many people that were in the room. <laughs> That's the, Yeah, I'm sure it's on blogs everywhere. Of course. Mark, this has been fascinating as always. Thank you so much for your time. So blessed by your writings and your ministry, and keep up the good work. Well, man, let me just t- say thank you to you, Rusty. You uh, you have been one I follow since your days in Kentucky, and what I love most about you is you you always have a great humor about life. And I know the role you're in, you live under a lot of pressure and there's always challenges. And yet I never know the challenges you're facing because being with you makes me happier. And I know that's why your church is growing. Well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you to say. Take care, man. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast, and I hope it was beneficial to you. Uh, Mark always uh, brings a smile to my face and is so kind as to give us his time. Uh, His book, Core 52, comes out in July of 2019. Encourage you to pick up a copy. and Maybe you you grab one and you put it on your shelf until January and start off your year with that. Um, But uh, it would be a great thing for you to get some friends together and start a group and start walking through that book. As always, I'd love to have your reviews on the podcast and get information from you on questions you'd like for us to address. Feel free to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already and share it with a friend. Thanks so much. See you next time.